there's something about being in a class from across the world, wanting to change the world together. It's ChargerCast. Welcome back. I'm Nick Novak. And if you've watched this show, you know that I really like interesting people. And so today, we have a really interesting person with us to talk a little bit about her academic journey, her professional journey, and just sort of her life journey, because she is right now the founder of a really cool NGO, Samita. And how she got there is really interesting as well. But first, let me say hi. Welcome to Priya Nayak. Thanks, Nick. It's amazing to be here. Great. Thanks so much for coming. So first, you're the founder of Samita. I think this is probably a good place to start with. What is Samita? Um, so we are an impact facilitator. It's not a common term. What we do is we sit in the middle of nonprofits, social enterprises, government, folks like USAID, um, foundations, and basically co-create impact at scale. We understand that social impact is highly complex, and it takes multiple stakeholders to do their bit, leverage their strengths and core competencies. So we sit in the middle of all of these actors, and we make sure that we're able to then reach a million, 10 million people at scale. So I didn't understand a single thing you just said, because um, <laughs> I'm not very smart. You went to you know, Yale and stuff. So uh, talk to me like I'm a 10-year-old. When you talk about social impact and at scale, what, what does that mean? So I mean, take women's empowerment, right? Um, the challenges that any woman goes through are multiple and highly complex, right? They are rooted in her family, in herself, in society, employers, etc. And so if you want to create real change, there isn't one single actor who can help this woman, right? Uh, it takes her family to shift their thinking. It takes the government to offer support, employers and colleges and society. So a whole bunch of people actually need to come together if you want to get women's empowerment. Okay. Um, and so we understand that it's difficult. We understand that there are many different people involved. And it's not any single individual's or in institution's problem to solve. So what we attempt to do is actually sit in the middle of all of these actors, uh, focus on women, focus on what they need, uh, but ensure that we're bringing resources from multiple places and aggregating them in a way that women actually benefit. Like a social impact broker almost? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that in a good way. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, absolutely, right? But I think it's about making it happen, not okay. just making the connections, because mm -hmm. it's not always easy for everyone to talk to each other or everyone to have the same priorities. So we ensure that everything's aligned. And ultimately, it's that girl or that individual who benefits, right? But, but we take responsibility for that impact. Now, it's kind of a, a niche type of thing, right? And I can't imagine you were a 10-year-old girl running around. Are you, from, are you from Mumbai? I am, yes. So you were running around the, the, the streets of Mumbai thinking, I'm going to found a social impact organization. What was that sort of pathway to doing this type of work? Um, so I, I grew up in Bombay, but I also studied in the Middle East. Um, and living in the Middle East is a little bit like a bubble, right? Because in India, if you grow up, poverty is all around you. And it doesn't, it doesn't impact you, it doesn't hurt you as much as it does if you live outside. And every summer when I came back, and I'd be sitting in my rickshaw or like in a car, and I'd see all of these kids around me, like my heart broke hmm. um, because for nine months I was living in a bubble and for three months I had to deal with the reality of the fact that I was lucky and they weren't. Uh, and it was really just about luck, right? Um, so I think it was, 
it was ingrained in me from the very beginning to say, look, the fact that you're born into this family with, you know, let's say education and privilege is a matter of luck. And don't take that for granted. And you really do need to give back. So in some sense, I knew that I was always going to give back. Uh, but then I came back. I studied here. I became an accountant and very quickly knew that that was not my calling. What led you into accountancy? My dad's an accountant, okay. right? So, um, I mean, graduating from Sydney, I had three options. I could get married. didn't want to. Um, I could go to business school, and I'd gotten into the IIMs and XLRI, but I'd just come back from the Middle East, and there was no way my mom was sending me far away, right? Mm. Um, and then the third option was to become a chartered accountant, which seemed like the thing to do. So three options. Had to pick one. Um, didn't like any three. And so I got really lucky and then ended up going to the U.S. to study public policy at a time when no one had heard of public policy. Okay, but let's talk about that for a second. So you have your accounting degree, you're a chartered accountant, then somehow you get into public policy at a U.S. university. What's, where did that path deviate? Yeah, so I think it was, you know, accounting was not my calling, right? Um, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do, and I knew I didn't want to do an MBA, just seemed like something that a lot of other people wanted to do. It didn't seem like my thing. Um, and, you know, this is back in 2000, so it's not like one has any information. The mm. Internet's terribly slow. Um, and so public policy seemed interesting because it seemed like a way to give back. Um, but by working with the government and working with a whole bunch of other actors, which I thought was fascinating. Also, I was ignorant and didn't know any better, uh, but seemed like a cool thing to do. Okay. So... But what does that look like? I mean, are you at home one day around the dinner table and all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, ah, this accounting thing kind of sucks. Meh, public policy. You know, so my parents were in Mexico at the time. And in some sense, it's not like I, I had anyone to even talk to. Um, and so it was just a decision that I could make. I didn't need to argue with anyone. And everyone said, you know, that's a really foolish thing to do. Who does that? Um, you've just given up this incredibly great job. I used to work for Arthur Anderson. Yeah, I'm saying that to you now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is a crazy thing to give yeah, up. Yeah, no, but, but, you know, I'm 21, and I can do whatever I want, right? And so I, I had a scholarship, and I said, well, I'll, I'll pay for this. And, I, you know, I think life changed um, because of that one decision. And that was for the University of Michigan, is That's that right. correct? Okay, how did you even know about the University of Michigan? You know, so it was interesting. I'd gotten into a whole bunch of schools, um, and I happened to talk to my brother's friend who was at Columbia back then. And I said, well, I've gotten into these schools, and where should I go? He's like, Michigan. And I said, why? He said, because it's ranked, you know, it's like a top three school. And I said, oh, okay. So, yeah, Michigan. And then I went there, and I realized um, that there was a big focus on domestic policy, not an American very little focus on international policy. And then six months later, I meet my brother's friend at Columbia, and I said, why did you say Michigan? He said, it's such a great engineering school. I said, but I didn't go there to study engineering. Uh, but anyway, it, it turned out just fine. I met some of my best friends there, and it was such a great school. So, so you went to the University of Michigan because your friend thought it was a good engineering school uh, and failed to tell you that when he said it's a great school... It was for engineering, not necessarily public policy. Yeah, life was very different in 2000, right? I mean, we just did not have access to the kinds of resources yeah. and information that you have today. But I love that. So uh, for, for those of you who don't know, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor has like, I don't know, what, 40,000 people or something yeah. crazy? It's yeah, a yeah, giant yeah. school. Um, it's like this flagship state school for the state of Michigan. 
what are you thinking you get off the plane in, I, I guess, Detroit, and you drive up to Ann Arbor, or like? Yeah, so, um, so this person who picked me up uh, was an Indian. They had a big Indian community, and uh, he brought me in to this place, like, a, it was like a dorm room, right? Um, and I pass by, and there's like Telugu music, and Tamil music, and Hindi music, and I'm like, I got off in the wrong country. Like, <laughs> I, this, is, this is not possible. And then I walk a little bit further, and then there's Chinese food, and like, is, is there a single white person here? Because this feels like I'm back at home. Huh. Uh, but Michigan has a very large Indian population. Uh, but it's, it's not what I was expecting. So you're at the University of Michigan. You're studying public policy, domestic focused. But you walk into your first couple of classes. Like, What's your impression of the academic environment at the University of Michigan versus Mumbai University or something in, yeah, in India? Yeah, I, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say this, but honestly, I didn't study at all, right, until I got to Michigan. Okay. And I was so excited just to be studying and enjoying the process. Huh. I think I signed up for eight classes every single semester, so I graduated in wow. a year and a half. Um, but, I mean, I loved studying, and I think what was really fascinating was, you know, unlike business school where everyone's there to get a job, public policy is like a small group of people who've come from all over the world very, very interesting backgrounds, right? People from Japan or Mexico, Britain, Ghana, etc. So a diverse class uh, with very different experiences. And everyone's there because they want to change the world. There's something about being in a class from across the world wanting to change the world together. And so um, I think there was never any sense of, let's say, confusion. I think it was... Like, I felt like I was at the right place at the right time, and this was me. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't felt that for a really long time, right? So it was, it was strange to be in a foreign country in a course that I had no idea about, didn't know what to anticipate, with a bunch of people that I had very little in common with, and yet really finding yourself. So you felt at home, but in the meantime, what was the reaction at real home? Like, how were your parents? So the great part is that, you know, it was so expensive to call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no FaceTime or WhatsApp or anything. But they had no idea. And my mom would just keep calling me every other week, and she'd say, have you put your jacket on? I was like, oh, you know, I'd be dead if I hadn't put my jacket on. Like, that's a really stupid question, Mom. Yeah, but moms care about that kind of thing. Yeah, right? because my mom lived in the desert, right? She lived in the Middle East back then. Uh, anyway, so I think that the very exciting part was that there was no parental pressure. No one knew what I was doing or what I was going to do. And the fact that I was paying for it myself, or you know, because I was whatever, I was, I was a scholarship student, it didn't really matter. Okay, so you end up getting a master's degree at the University of Michigan in public policy. Uh, before we move on, did you get a chance to go to a football game at the University I of did. Michigan? Oh my god, it was, but it was so cold <laughs> that I was really trying to focus on the game, but I, I couldn't get my mind off the fact that it was so cold. So that school is very famous for uh, their stadium called the Big House, which I think holds like a hundred thousand people or something yeah, it was crazy. crazy. So if you go to the University of Michigan, go to a football game. So you graduate from Michigan, and then you've got this public policy degree, plus you're an accountant. Is there any sort of internal thought that, well, that was like my fun public policy yeah. years, and now I'm going to go? So actually, it, it, it wasn't a whole lot of fun. Like I said, I was, I was taking eight classes. I was teeing. Um, but a few things happened. One is I spent the summer doing two internships. I did one internship with the IFC. And to the uh, International Finance Corporation. That's right. And it was, 
it was this amazing project which took me to four countries in mm -hmm. Africa and we were supposed to evaluate business schools, right? And I'd never been to these African countries. So it was Ghana, Nigeria, Cameroon, and Senegal. Huh. Uh, two French speaking, two English speaking. I didn't speak a word of French, so I was wondering what I was doing there. Couldn't understand most of it. Uh, but I think what was very powerful was it's four countries in different stages of development. And even just the aspects of poverty are very different, right? The reason behind it, how people have suffered or recovered. And I think it was like my first experience of being in a country where I didn't speak the language, I didn't fully understand the culture, I couldn't possibly, right? And yet you're sitting there, um, you're, you know, th the sense that you most rely on isn't available, I can't speak, I can't understand. Mm -hmm. And yet I felt like this is, like, this is the work that I was meant to do. Oh. Um, is it that tangible? Because i, I got to be honest, I've never had that, like, in my life where all of a sudden it was like, oh. Um, it, so it was, it was a month and a half of... But you, you have that, like, that legit, it. like, like this is... This is it. This is, like, a calling. It, it's a calling, right? Oh. Um, and I also got incredibly lucky because I went to Cuba. I also went to Morocco as part of just something that the school was putting together. Um, and so it was a diverse set of countries. And so th I think there were two realizations. One, that I needed to do this. And second, that I was so ill-equipped that I wasn't prepared to respond to any of the problems that I was supposed to be responding mm -hmm. to, right? Um, so I came back to school and went to my professor and I said, have to do something in poverty. He said, yes, of course, get a PhD because what else is he gonna tell me, right? What's a, yeah, prof yeah, a carpenter says, become a car exactly. yeah fine okay and so um, I think also I, I almost feel like there was a there was a guiding hand but what was uh, I think just incredible about the school is my professor let I mean I remember talking to him and saying you know I want to do all of these uh, these things and he said no PhD and I said okay maybe I want to go to these schools he said no these five um, so I applied to five schools I got into most of them and um, you know it, it's almost like he he led me forward and so I went to Yale to get a PhD in economics at a time uh, when it was the year of microfinance. And I wanted to do microfinance. It was sort of this big movement, right? About yeah, the Grameen and all. Empowering yeah. women, et cetera. Um, and again, got really lucky. Two professors, um, Dean Carlin and Rohini Pandey, who had just come to Yale, were sort of advisors. Um, and they were doing some fascinating stuff. And, you know, lo and behold, I'm, I'm at Yale. I mean, you know, growing up, I never thought I would be at an Ivy League, right, institution. Um, so I was doing the PhD, and again, kind of two, two different experiences, right? One, uh, just the PhD was tough. It was all math. It was not something I was prepared for. Um, so I think I really struggled. Um, but simultaneously, I ended up coming to India to do my dissertation work at Seva Bank in Ahmedabad. I'd never been to Ahmedabad before. And I remember sitting there, and there were these four women who had come to take a loan. And so I, I understand Gujarati, so I, I was listening to them. And then as I started working with Seva, I realized that a large proportion of women who took loans also had savings accounts. And I mean, I, I couldn't reconcile myself to the fact that, you know, you're paying 12% while taking a loan, you get 8% interest on your savings account. Very often, the women had more money in their savings account than the loan that they were taking. Really? And I'm thinking, oh, this is just because maybe they don't know, right? 
Um, so I, you know, we did some financial literacy programs, et cetera, et cetera. And then on my last day back, I happened to meet the same four women in the market. And I said, why did you take a loan? You had, you had savings, right? And they looked at me like I was a complete idiot. And they said, the loan account is with my husband. The savings account is all mine. <laughs> and I realized, I think with great humility, that the poor are so much smarter than we are because they lead really difficult lives. And they have to make these incredibly difficult decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. And I had completely underestimated it, right? So I went back to grad school and I said, you know, I, I can't be doing poverty research as an academic. I can't, like, I need to do something now. I can't write a paper about it that will get published five years from now. Right, because you missed that, the human touch. Yeah, and, and you want to solve it now, right? Uh. You don't, you don't want to solve it five years later. And so my professor um, sent me off to MIT um, because there's the Poverty Action Lab, which was just beginning and doing this incredible work. Yeah, what, I don't know what that is. What is the Poverty Action Lab? So, um, well, they won the Nobel Prize oh. a couple of years ago. Right. But it, um, well, I stupidly don't know what it is, but still, what is it? So, so J-PAL was started by um, Professor Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, Michael Kramer, and, and a bunch of academics. And the intent was really to study poverty using a very rigorous evaluation method, right? So it's like the gold standard of evaluation. Um, so I went to JPAL, uh, partly not to abandon research, but you know to try and do action research. And then at MIT, um, I I think while I was working for the lab, I suddenly getting I started getting invitations from a bunch of people on campus saying, "Come and talk to us about development." I was like. I'm, 25 years old. Yes, I've been to 25 countries, but I'm not an expert, right? Um, and so suddenly started working with a bunch of teams. One of my teams won the innovation competition at MIT now. Innovation at MIT, I mean, that's, that's a, um, you know, it's a tall order, right? And another one of my teams um, was runners up at the business plan competition. So two teams working on poverty did, did really well. And I was sitting on sitting at my desk one day, and this lawyer comes in, and he says, congratulations, you're now an entrepreneur. I was like, what? No, I'm a researcher. Like, I, I didn't sign up for entrepreneurship. He's like, no, the $10,000, you're now an entrepreneur. Um, the cash? Yeah, right? And before I knew it, you know, I had become an entrepreneur. And so to, to go from being a student to a researcher to a consultant to an entrepreneur in two years, what, what were you entrepreneuring though? It's not even a word. Uh, like, I mean, he didn't just come in and say, here's 10 grand, go, you know, go with God. Um, so there were two, um, two ideas. The first idea was, and this is in 2006, right? So the first idea was an aerosol-based vaccine delivery system. Boy, in simple words, we're, we're, it's a way to inhale a vaccine, yeah, not inject it. I'll, right? I, 20 um, years later. <laughs> and it was, um, the reason it was so important back then is because you had South Africa with a 40% incidence of HIV. And as you thought about even vaccinating children, a lot of times people were using the same needle to vaccinate multiple kids. Right, but how, how does someone with an accounting and public policy background start a vaccine company? Like, that seems like if you, if you were, hey, you'd studied biology or something, fine, but it seems like a pretty big leap to being like a, a biotech entrepreneur, basically, no? Yeah, um, but th I think that's what's fascinating about the U.S., and in particularly MIT, because my team members for Aerovax, which was the company, um, 
I mean, they were, there was a doctor in there, there was an engineer in there, there was, a, uh, there was a computer science graduate, and it was just such a diverse team. And huh. I didn't know any of them, and we just got together and wrote up this business plan and won some money. Uh, my other team was from the business school, and their idea was to take the $100 laptop, which had become very popular back then, right. um, and use it to transform microfinance. Um, and so two teams, right? Engineers and doctors, and then just these A-type uh, business school students. So two different ideas. And both those ideas actually took me to Bangladesh, where that was a year Professor Yunus won his I was going to say, speaking of Grameen Bank, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I was, I was um, consulting with Grameen Bank and working with Save the Children. Um, and again, uh, you know, to be there the year that Grameen won the Nobel Prize. Uh, and Bangladesh is a very interesting country. So I remember on my flight there, I opened a book to read about, you know, what I was going to encounter. And you know how most books about a country talk about food, language, culture? Chapter number one is about foreign aid. Uh, um, boy, that, yeah, that tells right, you And that right? kind of sets the context. Um, but anyway, I got really lucky. So uh, landed up in Bangladesh. A friend of mine at MIT introduced me to another somebody, like some person who I met. Turns out he was going to Harvard, but was making a movie. Um, As one does. Uh, about migrants. And so I, s I went for six days. I stayed for six months. Um, and just discovered this this fascinating country. But what happened to Aerovax? You're on like a like the yeah. No, no. I'm I'm glad you brought me back. But um, so so that's important because when I came back to MIT, actually, um, I went and I had a conversation with the folks at the Innovation Lab to say, so MIT back then had um, had like 500 people who had filed 500 different ideas for beetle nut crackers. And I'm thinking, you know, why are 500 MIT students worrying about beetle nut crackers? And whatever happened to their plan? And so the big revelation was that you had engineering students, the, some of the smartest in the world, working on problems that were so far removed from their individual lives. As an American, if I'm working on a beetle nut cracker, that doesn't change my life if I don't do it. But if I am, you know, if I'm born uh, in, you know, whatever, India or Ghana or whatever, then that machine is integral to my family and my community's prosperity. So I think for me, the aha moment was that you need three kinds of people. You need people who need the problem to be solved. You need the person who can solve the problem. But you also need an entrepreneur who has the business background to solve it. Right, because the engineer is trying to figure out this problem, but they don't have the day-to-day -day experience with the thing to understand inherently, oh, this is a terrible design because, I, whatever, we can't get springs locally or something like that. But the farmer, who cracks beetle nuts all day, every day, doesn't have the engineering background to create the ideal cracker, so you help bring them together. Uh, oh. so okay, I, cool. I, I went to this professor at MIT and I said, why don't we create a business plan competition where three kinds of people have to be there. Somebody who, who intimately understands the problem. Somebody who has the, I mean, you know, the engineering, not necessarily the engineering, but the expertise to solve it, the technical expertise to solve it, and somebody who can commercialize it. Um, and uh, so I spoke to an Indian professor, and he said, but you're not an engineer, so you can't come up with any of these ideas. And I said, fine, whatever. Uh, but, you know, for me, I think, that was a moment when I realized that 
if you want to solve a problem, it really needs collaboration. You need different people to come together, and no single person's insights or experiences are going to be enough, right? So I think yeah. it was sort of back then that... I love it. It sounds like the seeds of Samhita were, were sown there, but how do you, and I know we're running a little short on time, but how do you make the leap from this aha, your second aha moment, right? The first aha moment was in Africa, and you're like, this is what I need to do with my life, and the, the second aha moment is, okay, I need to bring these people together to make things happen. How do you go from that to being back here in India? So I had a professor at Harvard who said, um, who called me to his office one day and he said, do you want to go back to India? Um, I said, yeah, sure. He said, here's money, go to what you want. So I said, what would I do? So he said, you know, like run a dairy business. I said, I don't drink milk. He said, jewelry business. I said, I don't wear jewelry. Seriously? He said, healthcare. I said, I'm not a doctor. He said, education. You know something about education. Go to something in education. So I came to India with... Um, a really close friend of mine and his best friend and my brother, um, which was such a disastrous idea, but came to India to run an education incubator. And the idea was that, was similar to what we do at Samita, which is take a sector and create a series of innovations in that sector. So think about, you know, what what does it take to have a good school? How do you make a school great? Mm -hmm. How do you make a teacher great? How do you create infrastructure? How do you finance a school, right? How do you really bring all of those different pieces that go into creating an education system? So I came to India to run this education incubator. Um, we did really well for the first few months, and then we found that the person who was championing the work that we were doing had stepped down, and we were not going to see traction from the rest of his team. Um, so I was here, and all the three people with me went back to the U.S. And I, it was sort of that moment where I said I could stay back and do something about a country that I finally understand mm. and I'm comfortable with. Uh, because anywhere else, I would have to learn so much about the people, the culture, just the systems. Whereas here, I felt like I knew more. And so it felt right to stay back and, and create change. You were the beetle nut farmer. <laughs> in a matter of speaking. Uh, two quick things before we wrap up. One's an observation and one's a question. Uh, I've heard you talk a lot about professors, and that seems to be a common thread that we hear a lot, is that people going to U.S. universities really find these connections with their professors that lead them into all sorts of interesting directions. Um, and I think your story is a really good example of that. Um, on a completely different note, uh, to wrap things up, what would you say to a young girl right now who maybe is feeling pressured to study accounting or engineering or nursing or something, and she's not into it, but she doesn't know that she can make that leap. Like, what do you say to that person? That, look, you have to be true to yourself, right? Because ultimately, I mean, a lot of people are going to have opinions, as they do, and we're in India, right? Everyone has an opinion. Uh, and conflicting ones, right, depending on the day. Uh, but, I mean, you have to do what you think is absolutely right for yourself. And... I mean, I've, I've been in that situation so many times when I felt like listening to myself is the selfish thing to do um, because then you're not listening to a whole bunch of other people who care about you. They do, right? But, sure. But their advice is not the right advice. Um, and I know that to do the work I do, but that's true of any other work that anyone else does, everything's really important, is that unless you're happy, you're never going to be able to give it your best, right? Otherwise, you're just so occupied with dealing with sort of the unhappiness. So I would say, you know, I think for yourself, for everyone around you, for everything that you can create, just the potential in you, you have to do what, what feels right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
you know, it, it does mean explaining to people in a certain way that they understand, and sometimes they will and sometimes they don't, but you just have to stand up for yourself. So that has to be okay, and you have to be okay with yeah. that. Um, how do people find out more about Sabita? Uh, we have a website, so you can go look it up, and otherwise you can call me or email me. <laughs> okay. You guys on social media too? Facebook, yes. Instagram, yes, all that yes, sort of thing? Cool. Uh, I told you she'd have an interesting story. I'm glad you stuck around with us this far. It's Priya Nayak from Samita. Uh, and that's another episode of Chargercast. I'm Nick Novak. We'll see you next time.